Coming up next, the bookening continues its journey from Rivendell to the River Anduin. Or is that what the river is called? My name is Nathan Albers, and I'm your humble and obedient host. This is Brandon. Hey. He is the scholar who's a baller. That's Jake. He is the pastor who's a master. And today, guys, we have the privilege of talking our way through the end of the book, Fellowship of the Ring. Yay. All right. That's enough of that, Brandon. No more joking around, Nathan. We don't joke around on this podcast. What we do do is we talk about... (laughs) (laughs) You said doo-doo. I fell into the trap. (laughs) The classic conundrum. (laughs) Chapter three, the ring goes south. (laughs) What did you think about chapter three, the ring goes south, Jake? What? Remind me what happened in that chapter, Nathan, because it has been about eight months since I read it to my kids. Well, Jake... And fun fact, none of us have our book in front of us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jake, the ring moves in a southward direction. Oh. They leave Rivendell. Yeah. And a bunch of stuff happens before they get to the mines of Moria. Yeah. It's where you get this. What happens before they get to the crows flying overhead? Yeah, the crows. Yeah. And they're headed down to the pass, Sirith Ungol. Right. Look at that pull. Whoa. Yeah. Nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Look at the nerd. (laughs) Yeah, it's like all the stuff. It's all the. It's that delicious feeling of paranoia I was talking <laughs> right, about. Right, yes, yeah. And you guys were like, yeah, Nathan, we feel that same thing. Did we yeah. say A delicious that? feeling of paranoia, and that's the word that we would use. We totally backed you up on oh, that. Oh, yeah. 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 No, folks, they did not. They left me out to dry. You kept... Like, the, you really leaned into delicious. Enjoy yourself on the ledge, Nathan. <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd love a dish of uh, paranoia, please. <laughs> <laughs> Cup of the uncanny while you're at it. Oh, <laughs> uh, you got me. No, l- l- let me let me try and defend this because this is the most paranoid chapter, and <laughs> I want to argue the most delicious chapter. I don't think either of us disagree about the paranoia. That it's paranoid. It's the relative it's the deliciousness. deliciousness of it that we are maybe a little confounded by. Well, I have put no thought into how to explain this idea further. But I once read a book Did about, you? yeah, one time, <laughs> just once. There's exactly one instance of me reading a book. Ah. It was called "The Cat in the Hat Comes Back." <laughs> There's this hilarious feline, and he comes back. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, let me tell you, you realize you ever read "The Cat in the Hat"? It was the one that came back. Yeah, no, it's the one. That's the only book you've ever read. <laughs> the Cat in the Hat Comes Back. <laughs> I'd sure like to know what happened to that cat the first time around. Because <laughs> let me tell you, some stuff happened the second time. Thing one, thing two, Sally and the boy. Does the boy have a name? I don't know. I don't think the boy. How would you guys like it if I just did this character on the podcast the whole time? I think it'd be (laughs) great. great. I like this guy. (laughs) Deliciousness of paranoia. What were we talking about? The deliciousness of paranoia. The deliciousness of paranoia. The words that you just said, yeah. I don't know. Brandon? You read a book one time. Shirt. Yeah, I forget about that. That wasn't going anywhere. Shirt. What were you going to say? Did you just call me shirt? You sound like you were going to say shirt. (laughs) Brandon? Are you going to say surely? Take it back. I take it back. <laughs> All right. You're welcome to it. Okay. <laughs> we do not call each other shirt on the booking. No. That is a horrible thing to say about someone. I'm that is sorry, a horrible Nathan. thing to say. Kasay. 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 Hey, guys. It's Brittany again. <laughs> oh, hey, Brittany. Hey. Welcome back. Hey. Hey, it's me, the Knight of... Uh, you're the Knight of Infinite Resignation. Yeah, it's me, the Knight of... Hi, Brittany. It's me, the Knight of Infinite Resignation. Hey, want to go catch another movie? Yeah. yeah we met after last uh, showing and uh, taping. We, we hit it off. Yeah, I'm super uh, excited to be going on dates with a sex symbol from the late 90s. Hey, I'm like a genie in a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Christina Aguilera, guys. Oh. Come on. <laughs> Get it right. Poof. 
Wow, we said Christina, Christina Aguilera and she just disappeared in a puff of smoke. That's weird. That's how you get rid of Britney Spears. Yeah. You say the you words say- Christina Aguilera and she disappears <laughs> in a puff of smoke. I wonder if she'll ever be back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. We have such a great cast of characters on this podcast. <laughs> we do. The Mysterious Phantom, Britney Spears, <laughs> <laughs> The Night of Infinite Resignation. <laughs> Those are our three. <laughs> Maybe we should just do a podcast with them sometime. Oh, that would be fun. Thank you, Patreon donors. <laughs> This is what your money gets you? No, listen. It's been a long day. If people must know. I think people should know. The context of this episode is yeah. that we just recorded the episode on Waiting for Godot. If you listen to that episode, you have an idea of the frame of mind we yeah. are currently in. We literally lost ourselves in the slew of despair. Yeah. And we were feeling difficult to go anywhere with it. Yeah. But we did we go on. Feeling- Difficult to go anywhere with it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That, that was from your poetry. Sense. Yeah, <laughs> we were feeling difficult to go anywhere with I it. I think I may be having a stroke, guys. <laughs> Do you smell popcorn? Yeah, my sentences haven't been going in go the on? right direction lately. I can go on. I will go on. My heart will go on. Uh, Rose, I dang can fly. it, Jack. <laughs> this is where we first I'm met. King of the world. <laughs> You'll I never get this right. I can't say the line. Okay, folks, there will be no. Silliness in this episode. We're talking about Lord this of the is Rings. the this is token. Yes, we're talking about. Oh, token. let me pull out my token monocle. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact about Brandon: he's got a to- token monocle. Oh boy, I can't even talk. All right, Jake, you're it's doing the episode to- by yourself. <laughs> it's a monocle made out of t- a token, mm-hmm. and I call it the token monocle. So it's a token token monocle. A token token monocle. Yeah, she sells she sells by the seashell. Yes, sure. Yeah, sure. sure. No, she doesn't sell seashells by the seashell. Okay. The deliciousness. <laughs> hey, guess what? We yes, were just talking. Were my it. token, token monocle. We we had started talking about the chapter, but you decided to defend the deliciousness of <sighs> paranoia. 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 I don't actually like to feel paranoid in real life, guys. It's a negative emotion. Just like I don't like to feel scared. Actually, I don't like to feel drama in my life, but I like to watch things because it's kind of cathartic or something. I feel like Aristotle talked about this a little bit. So, I mean, no, I think that okay, sometimes maybe, negative maybe, emotions in when they're in art actually maybe like, we're all talking maybe we're talking past each other. Yeah. I, I think that we both agree that paranoia can be fun, right? Yes. It's fun. whether or not this chapter is really delicious. And also it well and whether or not paranoia the, itself is delicious. Delicious has a has connotations to it that I just don't yeah. know. Like you're just savoring that paranoia. Well, yeah, yeah. kind of. I mean, I yeah, I, okay, maybe not quite. <laughs> like a big old bag of buttery paranoia. Yeah, like a because if there's one thing it, that I savor, it it's a big ple- old buttery it can, bag. It can be pleasurable. It can be fun, but delicious is not a place I'm willing to follow you on on paranoia. I don't think. Well, I, I mean, mean, I was testing it. I was. Trying it, probing it, probing Nathan, it. Don't you, you go know. where I can't follow. My heart will go on. No, that's a quote from okay, the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> from who? Lord of the Rings, Frodo. Oh, Sam, don't don't you go where I can't follow. Don't you be going where I can't follow, Mister Frodo. Why do I think that it's something savory? I guess I just have this feeling of it makes me feel so comfortable when I read about other people being not comfortable or something like that like you read you watch a movie or you read a story about rain you never feel more warm you watch a story about people looking out over their shoulders there's eyes watching them you do that in your bed at night or on your couch you feel really safe and really glad not to be there and it just it makes the shire more shirey this makes me feel like maybe there's more psychopaths to you than i imagine yeah and it's 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 close to like eating both having your cake and eating it, right? I'm glad you didn't say eating someone's brains. Or something <laughs> like that. It's like having the brains in front of you and also eating them. Right. <laughs> in other words, you get to have this feeling of paranoia without actually being in that danger. But you guys are going to have a hard time arguing that that's not similar to what all of our great art does. I mean, no, why, do, why do you like tragedy? You don't like... It's, it's going back to catharsis, Your family yes. dying, but you like reading Romeo and Juliet, no, but, right? But, but, but that's why I said what I said about psychopathy. Because in those moments, I don't know, I, I feel the tension of the characters. I'm, and so I, if I'm into it, if it's a good story, it's a well-told story, I, I start to feel that kind of paranoia or that kind of... Yeah, I'm entering into the sadness. I'm not it's not like in the midst of their sadness, I feel I've never felt more happy. Right. 
in the midst of the cold winter scene, I've never felt more warm. In the midst of this paranoia, I've not never felt more secure. It's much more of an entering into it for me. So it's discomfort, but a discomfort that can still be pleasurable or that can be... And, and sure, pleasurable because of some sense. Some sort of aesthetic contemplation of something. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. A cathartic kind of... But yeah, and it's, but the, well, it's it, not it, that I don't sympathize with the characters. It's not that I'm not scared I, for them. Yeah, I know don't, that. don't experience negative emotions, but <laughs> it's like a thrill ride movie. Like Indiana Jones isn't having any fun, but it's, I am. Yeah. I'm on the edge of my seat. And because people are dying and things are going flying and he's in danger, like these are all negative things, but the aesthetic contemplation of them is not. It's quite pleasurable. Hmm. So. Is that a primary delight you get from this chapter or it's the only delight i get from the oh, chapter well, there may be psychopathy involved <laughs> the only thing i like is watching those little hobbits squirm because <laughs> <laughs> if this is if this is a secondary aesthetic effect I, I can be on board but i'm with jake here that primary joy i get out of it is through the perspective of the characters and what's happening yeah i do too i mean i'm, I'm playing up the psychopathy for so you're pointing out for fun that this is a unique feature of this chapter is the paranoia well i think what i realized in reading the book and what i wanted to point out because i thought it was interesting is that you don't think of tolkien as dealing in paranoia the same way that say like a sur modern surveillance thriller a born movie or something does but he actually does he's really good at whatever whatever suspense suspense and that feeling of kind of being watched and of having to sneak around spy things no, subterfuge things no, he's, he's yeah he's good at something's out there he does okay, that yeah, about as he, well as he's anybody good, he's good at the secondary effects that help build the story so even having the pattering of feet that you don't really realize is Gollum until what the second to last chapter mm -hmm. or even, and so I always knew it was Gollum well you you don't have it said directly I'm, to I'm you. Smarter than you. Jake right. is Jake is good. Who is this? This is Brandon yeah. reading the book <laughs> every time. I Who could it be? <laughs> is it Bilbo? I know it's Bilbo. <laughs> is it Fatty Bulger? <laughs> I knew he'd come back. <laughs> come on, Fatty. <laughs> it's old. Uh, what's the name of that horse? Oh, they're, Bill. They're, yeah, they're still riding Bill at this point. Yeah, there's something kind of exciting about. I don't know. It's like going on a haunted hayride or something there's something ex you know that something's gonna pop out but you don't know from where and tolkien does that kind of delicious i just used it non-ironically he does that anticipation that yeah suspense he builds suspense no it's, it's he puts a bomb under the table tells you the bomb is under the table and then no, says you you're i'm not gonna tell you when it's gonna go off and you just have to wait for it about as well as anybody like he's he's, yeah, he's a good he's suspense good novelist it's, it's actually, what i yeah. it's what i try to help my students understand about tone I guess tone in literature and fiction and in poetry is the closest that it's the closest parallel we get to like taste with the culinary arts. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just, like you said, it's, it's got a sort of a savor sensory it. taste about it. And that's what tone is. It's flavor. We it's call the flavor, the flavor. Yeah. It's the, thank you. Yeah. No problem. It's, <laughs> it's got a sort of, I knew there was a savory taste. taste. What is that? Sensory oh, taste. <laughs> the sensory taste to this thing is good. <laughs> I'm just now learning how to use language, people. Sorry. <laughs> I am a robot. <laughs> Brandon, do you know we, how to love? With, I, I don't know if I do, Nathan. We were with, with some friends recently. And do you dream of robotic sheep? I do. And they pointed out that often instead of laughing, I'll say, oh, that's that's funny. <laughs> oh, I do that all the time. So My I'll wife say, calls me on that. Yeah. And so it's kind of a robotic thing. Instead of laughing, I'll, I'll acknowledge that's funny. <laughs> so anyways. I that do was that. funny. Especially if somebody makes a really good joke. I'm like, yeah. I appreciate that as humor. Good job. Yeah. Well done, sir. Well, well done. Played. And to me, that is a higher compliment than a laugh, but yeah. nobody ever takes it that way, especially not my wife. <laughs> and, but it's hard to talk about and describe these sorts of things other than by the sensory impression that they make, the flavor of them, right? Mm. And so, and Tolkien is really good at this. You had the, we call it the eldritch, uncanny sort of stuff yeah. early on. Here are the paranoia. And the Shire, it's that just the flavor of homely, nostalgic peace that's there. And so, yeah, he, he is good at that. He, he's good at conjuring those things through his words and through his set pieces. So well, I, I me, agree. I, I, I just I, don't agree that that's a primary. It's, it's, no, it's I'm a, not it's arguing a, that it's an, primary. It's a good ancillary thing. I think it's, it's more important than, like Tolkien doesn't get credit. Like nobody's going to put Tolkien in the thriller section of their, yeah. of their bookstore. 
he's not credited with that but he's actually really good at building tension slowly through these little details like there's someone out there that kind of and he's i mean you see it in full effect in the minds of moria yeah so with the terror of what's ever in the pond or that lake and then once the rocks are behind them well it looks like the only way is to move forward so then you have the well and and the drums that are beating but then nothing happens at first and so there's just this sense of danger and dread with the minds of moria i would say the tone that he's setting is that sense of dread as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Paranoia, but also just this growing dread so that I think it's Frodo has the feeling that he wants to run mm-hmm. in the darkness, right? There's just this, as they get further and further into the mines, it's just this growing sense of terror that there's something that they're going, walking towards. And he's good at establishing that both in the way that he has his characters think, but also just in the way he describes things. And it's- well, when you make Gandalf afraid of something and you yeah. build Gandalf up. Because it's interesting because going back to those horror stories we had to read, mm-hmm. you think about- We had the privilege no, of the, enjoying the, the, through the, our sensory- That we had to read. <laughs> Though I will give you this, Nathan. I will give you this. I ended up reading The Red Death again several times with students of mine. Mm-hmm. I ended up liking it better than I did when we read it. Good, because we're going to read it five times yeah. this week. This, this so I think, I, I think that if we read Poe again, I may have a little- Easier. More sympathy. Yeah. Not for that one awful thing that we read, though. Whatever that was. About the dead corpse. Oh. (laughs) That was legitimate trash. (laughs) That was trash. We might read some good Lovecraft, or at least some better Lovecraft. But the Red Death, when when you think of it as a parable. It's a nice little Yeah, or not even even just a parable. It's just a little allegory. It's fun. And it does, and it's a good, for now, right now, with what we're going through, you know, it's applicable. That's right. That's right. There you go, Nathan. I'm a little bit more on the side of Poe right now. Thanks, Brandon. You. You're welcome. I'll gnaw on this little bone that you threw me until next October. <laughs> As I pat your head. Oh, Nathan, here you go, little lad. <laughs> All that to say, mm. without being purple with his prose, without being over the top and really having to twist the bone, like take your, I don't know, like find that muscle that's all horror and like twist it and be really emphatic about it. He manages to do all this with a lot of leisure domain, with sleight of hand. And well, the way he does it like is- Like I'll use the word and then I use the word. <laughs> leisure domain, sleight of hand even. That was a very <laughs> stupid thing to do. <laughs> well, the way I think he does it, one, one trick is, or just one thing to observe about this book is it is all build up. The payoffs are so yeah. short. Like yeah. the Balrog is probably like 500 words or something. The The big action scenes that like your kids, your boys, when you get done reading this book, they will remember Helm's Deep. They'll remember the, the Balrog. Like those things will be touchstones for them, just like they were for me. You go back and it's like Tolkien doesn't spend any time. Describing. Right. He doesn't care what the Balrog looks like. He doesn't yep. care that much about too much of the strategy and the awesome action of Helm's Deep or the right. Right. The, the Rohi. It's just anticipation 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 we're in return of the king right now and it's just all leading up chapter on chapter of preparations Mm -hmm. for this impending doom this night that is coming this attack that's coming and you know you've got the the nazgul are flying up ahead and making everybody's blood run cold and the shadow is creeping toward you and then you're cutting to the Rohirrim, and they're trying to make their way, and they realize that as they go, they're hearing rumors of you know their homelands being burned behind them. They've got nowhere to go. They're going to their mm-hmm. death. It's just all just sort of piling up. Aragorn's going through the paths of the dead, trying to muster some kind of army, maybe meeting his doom, and it's all leading up to this one thing that when you finally get to it. But it's fascinating that your brain doesn't really especially as a kid or, you know, when the first time you read the novel, whatever age you are, you, you don't think of it that way. You don't think of it as an anticlimactic, it's, but it's because he's invested it with so much portent and so much right. importance that it doesn't really even matter what the payoff is. You yeah. know, I think of like the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're going to spend 10 minutes with Clint Eastwood squinting at the two other guys and then they're going to pull their guns and shoot each other and who cares? Like there's, there's only so much you can do with them shooting each other, but you can do a heck of a lot yeah. with them looking at each other and their hands inching towards well, their and holsters. And, you know, I mean, that's the thing that Tolkien loves, 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 loves to do is back everybody into a corner, mm-hmm. make it look like they're going to die, make them know they're going to die, make them decide to do the right thing. And then having some- You catastrophe, as catastrophe, he would say. You know, something- 
out of nowhere comes and saves the day. And then it's super cathartic because it's like you've already been there. You've already died with them. They died before they went in the battle. You mourn their death before they went in the battle. You sell, You were prepared to celebrate their heroicism as they went out to their deaths. And then and so you experience all of those emotions up front. And then you think you're going to watch everybody marching to their deaths or, you know, make their last ride or whatever it is. And then they don't. And then they don't. And then it's just like so cool. Yeah. Especially as a kid. Yeah. Like my kids have been convinced every step of the way that everybody's going to die soon. And it's just like gripping and sad and awesome and exciting and scary. And Hmm. It's interesting to me that it's almost like the payoff doesn't matter. Like Minds of Moria is a perfect example. There's actually not that much that happens down there. But we're going to spend a whole chapter with Aragorn and Gandalf obliquely debating about whether to go down there and how scary. We're going to just like keep driving the point home. Like you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. You don't want to. It's like the work's already done by the time we end up in there. It's interesting. So two points here. One, so you mentioned the good, the bad, and the ugly. I was thinking maybe it was a uh, literature versus a cinematic thing, but I don't think it is i think it has to do with artistic vision because peter jackson chooses to really focus on the action yeah and he makes his own movies about that while like you said tolkien doesn't and i think what tolkien is doing so c.s lewis has his wonderful uh, essay on stories and he says that there are two different types of readers there's the type of reader that only reads for adventure Mm -hmm. and they don't care how the adventure is posed to them so in in other words the sort of the thing that happens to Gandalf could have happened anywhere. All that matters is that, is that it happens to Gandalf, right? That you have that confrontation with an enemy and Gandalf falls. Right. C.S. Lewis's point was no, and he doesn't talk about the Lord of the Rings, but this is one way to read it through the Lord of the Rings is no, it had to happen in the Mines of Moria because the Mines of Moria and the setting and the feelings and the tone and the, the atmosphere, the atmosphere yeah. that you get there is just as important as what happens right. in the mines. And I think you see that there. Like, for Tolkien, no, that had that would have only happened in the Mines of Moria, and you needed the Mines of Moria. Right, there's not a just as good because, cliff we can throw Gandalf yeah. off of. There's not <laughs> another enemy that we can have the same thing. We can just swap yeah. out. And even though I love that that essay, I hadn't really thought of this through it that lens before, but it helps because then you begin to realize, well, that's all this book really is: is you have the Shire, mm-hmm. and yes, those things happen in the Shire, and people act according to their character and he's good at that like he's he knows his characters he knows how he knows what pippin's going to do he knows what frodo's going to do even if some of them are a little bit more one-dimensional like aragorn than others they're still going to act according to their nature and that's going to drive the plot forward but just as important as that is the places they find themselves the old forest and the way that's going to shape things the barrow downs and the way that's going to shape things coming up lothlorien and the way that will shape things right and so place and setting for tolkien are just as important as character. Yeah. Which I find interesting. So. Yeah, in the essay that you're talking about, C.S. Lewis talks about reading, well, two things. He, first, he, t- he talks about H. Ryder Haggard, who wrote King Solomon's Mines, and there's kind of an Indiana Jones scene in that book where the heroes in the jungle get trapped in this, you know, Indiana Jones-type tomb, and they're just walled in. They don't know how they're going to get out. And C.S. Lewis says, I don't actually remember all these years later, now that I'm not a boy, how they got out of this trap, but I'll always remember the trap, that feeling of being stuck with these ancient yeah. corpses. And then the other example he gives is James Fenmore Cooper, a scene where an Indian is with a hatchet is sneaking up on somebody. And C.S. Lewis had a friend that he was talking to and he was describing how evocative this old world of savagery was to him with this guy sneaking up. And how if you put it in modern times and a serial killer was sneaking up or you swapped out, like it wouldn't have been as good. It would have been different. It was actually the atmosphere that he cared about. And his friend said, no, I just wanted the suspense as a mechanic. Insofar as there was any atmosphere, it actually got in the way. Yeah, I'm different from you. Like, I don't, I don't care about cowboys and Indians. I don't care about anything. I just wanted the story. And so, those, yeah, those were the two types he was trying to delineate was between those. And so that actually, yeah, uh, the Indians that uh, C.S. Lewis makes the point that, no, it matters that it was American Indians right. that this was happening with. And so here with Tolkien, I think that he has such a, so you talked about last episode how for good fantasy, 
you have to feel that that world works according to its rules. Yeah. Well, also for good fantasy or sci-fi, you also have to feel that the worlds that are created within that world are real and have depth and reality to them. And so I think that the fact that this is a dwarvish cave really mattered to Tolkien, right? This was as good. This was just as much about showing the old hints of the old world of the dwarves as it was to have anything happen with the story. Right. Right. They dug too deep. They yeah. dug too deep. That so you line got to, alone is like. It's great. Yeah. And so you got to see like hints and echoes of this whole world and mythology that surrounds it. And it's just same stuff that happens in the old forest. You get early echoes of that with Rivendell. And again, it'll be really emphasized with Lothlorien. Well, Jake, you're the famous cave hater. I guess we're talking about Moria now. Actually, I did want to make one other point to what to everything we were saying. There's an amazing amount of climaxes that I'd just forgotten. Like there's like showdowns with wargs and stuff in this section before we get to Moria that mm. A, Peter Jackson didn't include, which is probably one of the reasons I forgot them. But B, it's just like those things actually don't matter as much as the the tension and the characters and the the environment. Anyway, now we're at Moria. Jake, how does this rate as far as claustrophobic? Number one. This is number one with a bullet. Wait, what were you going to say? As far as claustrophobic cave stories. Oh, this is last place. Like it's the least claustrophobic or? Yeah. So what's number one? I mean, I don't know. There are only a handful, I guess. Number one is probably some YouTube video about a guy dying, getting stuck in the cave or something, if you're me. Yeah, but, stories of friends and actually going caving and getting stuck. 27 and, hours, or whatever that movie was. Ugh, yeah, let's not talk well, about that. Yeah. Like, yeah, all that stuff. No, Mor- uh, Moria is the single best cave story I've ever read. It's great. Better than, which book was Silver that? Silver Chair. Yeah. Silver Chair. Yeah, no, Silver Chair is claustrophobic to me. This is not claustrophobic. It's not the same. I don't know. It's probably because, it's honestly probably just because Peter Jackson made it completely cavernous cavernous and pretty well lit yeah actually well well lit cavernous even if you're going through halls and tunnels they're huge and you're going down stairs in the va- these vast caverns and everything's big and open actually in the way that well and both Tolkien Jackson and- imagines the grandeur of the dwarvish kingdom which feels i don't feel like i don't know it's hard it's hard to to it, it at the very least doesn't feel like Tolkien contradicts that. That reading Tolkien gives you a more claustrophobic feeling. No, I felt the same thing. Actually, I thought I think that's <laughs> one of the places where Jackson really does well. He the, yeah. the little part where Gandalf says, "Let's in Jackson says we can risk a little light," and you see these big pillars right, and stuff yeah. like Tolkien. That Tolkien wants you to feel like there's this awesome kingdom here, and it's all lost and forgotten and. Yeah, there are halls on halls on halls and hallways and Yeah, you're not what you're not what you're you are is you're perpetually stuck in darkness or half light. Yeah. But even in there, and I don't know, uh Jackson doesn't do this, but you know, they've got these massive windows that peek out of the mountains that these huge shafts of yeah. light. Yeah. Jackson actually all does the way out. does in point of fact, Jake Jackson actually does do it in uh in Balanced Doom, there's a little, there's a, like a shaft of light coming down, I think, okay. which is in both Tolkien and Jackson. But, but he doesn't make a point of it. It's just in the set design. I don't know why I remember that. Well, anyhow, everything's so big and grand and open that it doesn't have the same effect on me that something like Silver Chair does. The one scene that kind of gets has that effect for me is the scene where Gandalf has to stop for like a day and a half to decide which direction to go. That's a pretty horrific dilemma to contemplate like what if we went the wrong direction and we're just yeah. stuck in here forever yeah. and it, to stump gandalf helps you realize how vast and cavernous these minds are it's pretty cool to think that the way they enter is actually just the mind portion and it's not until it opens up into the great road that you realize that's the dwarvish that's where they would have dwelt right so this was the first part that's dangerous is where they're actually it's like they're going through coal shoots and stuff like that mm-hmm. the very the so that was that was fun. Yeah. Well, we shouldn't let this podcast go by without talking about the Watcher. That's a pretty cool little two hundred words or whatever that thing that comes out of the lake and goes for Frodo, the little Lovecraftian, yeah, beastie. It is. It's awesome. And like you said, it's two maybe maybe two hundred words. It doesn't much doesn't happen. But again, that paranoia. You get the bubbles. Mm. This vast foggy lake and the 
Gandalf is the one who notes silently to himself that it went after Frodo first. Right. And so. Well, we've made this point a million times in various places on the podcast, but especially with horrific things, it's so much more powerful what you leave to the imagination. And Tolkien's a master of giving you just enough that it feels potent. It feels powerful. You know what he's talking about, but you also don't. You can fill in a lot. And so. Well, and it. Again, every time he does something like that, it goes back to what we were talking about in a previous episode of him always just wanting you to feel like this world is bigger and mm-hmm. scarier and there are things that we're not going to explain what they are or where they came from. It's a big wide world for a little hobbit and who knows what's lurking around any corner. There's a scary thing in the lake and it knows enough to know that the ring it's drawn to it, it. wants to go for it. Yeah, it's drawn to evil. Which is fantastic. I don't know that there's that much more to say about Moria. The Balrog is much different than Peter Jackson's vision. Well, the thing when I said all that about he gives you just enough and lets your imagination go to work, the Balrog is the perfect example because I remember in the theater seeing that movie for the first time. The Balrog scene's cool, and especially back then it was state of the art with special effects, but it's like it has horns. Like you decided to go that direction. Like it's okay, that's Peter Jackson's Balrog. It's not my Balrog. Yeah, and Peter, and Peter Jackson, or I was surprised. I really am f- sad that, I mean, I didn't even know the books were a thing before I saw the movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll always imagine That's, that, that yeah, Balrog. That Peter Jackson's Balrog is my Balrog. But the description that Can that Tolkien, be a t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> Peter Jackson's Balrog is my Balrog. That sounds like a great t-shirt. Uh, but his description of it, where it's like a dark, shadowy figure of a man with fire all around it. And the it was, flames leap up to kind of join yeah. with it. Is interesting. It's much more ethereal, like whatever the dark side of ethereal. It's much more demonic than yeah. Peter Jackson's kind of beastie is. Yeah. yeah, his was almost like a bull. Yeah, right? like a you imagine a satyr. it, a satyr or um the uh, minotaur. Minotaur. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's what I meant. It's like a minotaur. Satyr's a half goat. Well, I always yeah. kind of wished that the Harry Potter guy had swapped with Peter Jackson. Because I think Peter Jack, the the later Harry Potter guy, because the later Harry Potter guy did really cool kind of creepy Dementors and he made the dark stuff really dark where yeah. Peter Jackson just kind of goes for more generic beasties Yeah, a lot of times. Well, imagine if Guillermo del Toro. Oh man, Guillermo del Toro's Hobbit would have rocked. I know. It's one of the great losses. It is one of the great losses. I only mean that half sarcastically, Nathan. Uh, no, I mean that 0% sarcastic. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's one of the great losses. Great, to sim- like, I mean, I was, uh, I was cutting off some of magnificent that. I'm sure there's versions. like Da Vinci paintings yeah. that have been stolen and crap like that. But yeah, it's great. There was a lacuna there. I was leaving a little bit to the imagination, but I meant cinematic, recent cinematic losses. Right. I guess let's fast forward to Lothlorien. That may be the only really important thing to talk about in this novel. Guys, stop me if you have other things, but... I kind of said everything I wanted to say about the stuff in between already. I mean, what are you going to say about the Pool of Dimadir or whatever? The Pool of Dimadir? Is that... Or whatever, Dimadir, the... When they cry, everybody's crying. And that's the next chapter where they're all crying and then they go and see the dwarf pool. Yeah. And they see the stars where Balin first saw us or whatever cool. his name was. Yeah. That's a cool yeah. little moment. Yeah, it brings in some of that mysticism of... The book, it's great, but I think you're right. Let's move on to Lothlorien. Please. So what'd you guys think about old Lothlorien? Lots of trees. <laughs> Seems like a nice place. He knows how to get the various types of forests. He, it's I mean, way I know. more fun to me than what Jackson did with Lothlorien. Jackson's yeah. Lothlorien sucks. Yeah. Jackson has no sense of the fae, if I may. Like, he doesn't. He's, he's so concrete. He doesn't understand how to do abstractions. The only sense Jackson has of how to do like abstract kind of transcendental stuff is well, literally make things glow. Let me make things glow and make them go into slow motion, yep. which is such a clunky way to sh- show anything kind of angelic or divine. Like we have Kate Blanchett. You can just tell her, hey, be angelic, be divine, be otherworldly, and she'll do it because she's Kate Blanchett. She can do anything. Glow. You can actually give that direction to her and she'll do it. <laughs> she doesn't think, I've been trained on the stage. I can glow if you want me to, Peter. But instead, we're going to turn her blue for some reason. Here, Tolkien wrote dialogue. I'll be beautiful and terrible. All will love me in despair. That does the job for you. And instead of trusting that, we're going to make her into a photo negative and have her scream. 
<laughs> quadruple her voice and make it deep effect, and uh, put effects on it and oh you love me and despair i mean that scene is so corny and terrible but and and we're gonna put everything in slow motion they're gonna be walking up the stairs on the tree in slow motion and she's gonna say welcome frodo baggins what with her eyes as, that we zoom in on you have seen the eye the eye the eye it's like you can get that same sense really subtly and it'll be way more powerful I guess if you want to be Fey, you can't be Fey. You have to trigger Nathan's Feyness. Like you have to, you have to leave something. <laughs> yeah, I know, folks. <laughs> Whatever. You know what I meant. Trigger Nathan's Feyness. Trigger my Feyness. <laughs> Another shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but Tolkien's like, I'm gonna give you some hints, and I'm gonna let you fill in those hints with your brain. And your brain knows what it finds angelic and Fey and interesting, and it'll do that. But I mean, cinema's very limited in that. It is. It is. To be fair, it is. But I think there's more colors in the palette than Jackson chooses to paint with. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's the, like I was saying with Kate Blanchett, there's the flavor of actor. <laughs> if you just trust your actors and give them some good dialogue, for example, you can, you can do a lot. Yep. Maybe not everything. But, I mean, he has these great, I wrote down a couple things like, in Rivendell, there was memory of many ancient things. Here they lived on. Frodo stood still, still, hearing far off great seas upon beaches that had long ago been washed away, and seabirds crying whose race had perished from the earth. Yeah. And you don't have to get that, like you said, by some metaphysical change of physical reality. You right. don't have to have everything glow or be slow motion or... Well, like there, that thing I just read, Tolkien's not going to describe a pterodactyl for me. He's just going to evoke my feelings of old creatures because it's interesting yeah it's not even that there is a sense of wonder and splendor to the elves but it's not that they aren't also made of stuff right and the same sort of stuff that everyone else is made of yeah i found that interesting especially like in rivendell i think we already talked about this but you get the same sense in lothlorien too that it does feel otherworldly but only in their ends and what they're directed towards and not so much how they it is how they appear, but it's because of the direction, not so much because of actual stuff. Does right. that make any sense? Yeah. And it's and the, the elves would feel so much more like Tolkien's elves if you could imagine them becoming orcs. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, orcs are corrupted elves. Yeah. And maybe the corruption came a long time past, but if you can imagine the descent from elf to orc. Well, I think like, it's a moral problem. Like, I don't think... Like, Tolkien can be very matter of fact about good because he believes in it. Whereas Peter Jackson has to kind of dress good up and put a hat on good because I don't think he really actually knows what good is. And so these creatures are better than us. Uh, put it in slow motion. Maybe then people think that they're better. But Tolkien's just like, no, this is how somebody that's a little bit better than us would talk and act. It's not that much different. It's, you know... How some of my professor friends probably talk and act. It's it's just... Yeah. I, I will say, though, again, I said this about Goldberry, and I'll say it about Galadriel. Tolkien does get awfully wonky and kind of Jackson-y even when it comes to his female characters. And I think Galadriel's the best. I mean, Galadriel's the most, at least. She's supposed to be that way. That's the whole conceit with her. But the woman as some kind of symbol for something as some kind of transcendent earth goddess gonna inspire Gimli from now to the end of the yeah to the end of the book yeah, yeah. I would be very happy if Galadriel really. was the only character like that and we didn't also have Goldberry and we would also have Eowyn feeling a little bit that way Arwen Arwen yeah like Tolkien doesn't actually do any other women yeah. and it's fine I mean it's not a book the point of yeah. the book wasn't to make sure that women were well represented but I, I, I find Tolkien's... Rosie. Well... Rosie, yeah. I think, yeah. No, I agree with what you're saying about women. Can I go back to what you were saying about Tolkien... I mean, uh, Jackson unable to imagine the yeah, good? please. I think that's because... So, I, to go back to C.S. Lewis, his wonderful essay on Paradise Lost. He talks about solemnity, and he goes back to, like, Beowulf medieval times, where there was a solemnity to the regal order, to the nobility. There was a nobleness in the way that nobles carried themselves. 
And so even though the king was still flesh and blood, there was still a regality to the king Mm -hmm. and to the ceremony surrounding the king. And so that's kind of what I meant by it's still made out of stuff, but there's a different direction, a different end of it. Yeah. And so think of like the difference between a Shakespeare history play versus a Shakespearean comedy or even a Shakespeare tragedy versus a comedy. They're all characters and they're all of this world, but there's a different setting and a different end that they have. One's noble while the others are common, right? And I think that for Americans, it's really hard to grasp that. And so I think the best that Peter Jackson can do is by going to this hippie, mystic, otherworldliness. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that he thinks that he can help us understand what this is like. But he doesn't realize that really where he should have gone was Henry V and Beowulf, those sorts of things. That would have been much more in line with what Tolkien was thinking when it came to the elves. Yeah. And it would have been strange because people, when they think elf, they also think Zelda. They think those sorts of things. The sort of... It'd be fair to Jackson. Making elves not silly and giving them some dignity is actually kind of a tall order. Yeah, but I think that people would have been surprised at how much like us the elves would have looked while also being a little different. Right? I think that it's just difficult for them to grasp that sort of thing. Yeah. I also live in an age that is suspicious of anything that's elevated, of anything that's formal, of anything that is high. It's the feeling of the people. It's the sense of the people, the the, the flavor, the, ten, the tone surrounding them. Well, and anyways. To your point earlier, released the same year as Fellowship of the Ring, Shrek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A movie that's tearing down every notion of anything special about princesses or princes <laughs> fairy or tales fairy or... tales i mean when you say that it gives me a lot of sympathy for peter jackson because he's not a subtle man <laughs> but he's trying he's like what can i do to give these guys some dignity uh slow motion special yeah. effects but i don't it's, know it's, it's interesting so thinking of it in in a country like england where they still have some ceremony surrounding the crown mm-hmm. it's probably much easier for them to grasp this sort of thing and to grasp the innate elfishness of these people. And to therefore grasp the innate humanity behind them as the, well. the pomp and circumstance. Because there you have, everybody knows that the body of the king is also the body of the, um, the body politic versus the body actual, the, the king's body. Mm-hmm. And so that's been an ir- the, the um, ironic, or what, it's not ironic, but the paradox. That's the paradox that they've lived with, uh, with their legal system for years is that... The king both represents all the state and also has a king, a human body, right? Therefore, you can have things like or elves. the queen, as it were. Yeah, the queen. And so you can have things like the elves where they have a special position while also having bodies that can die, mm-hmm. right? And be And to have that, there's just, I think that there's a something missing in the American imagination where we can't quite fully grasp what he's... What, what would be very easy for an Englander to grasp. Yeah, I think that's true. And in the New Zealand imagination, I guess, as well. Well, I don't think I have anything else to say about this. There's the... Is there anything else? Let's see, you got the Mirror of Galadriel. That's to say about Lothlorien? The I mean, they're the gifts that she gives. She gives that thing. Well, the mirror, well, at the very least, shows you how well-planned the book is. Yeah. The series, rather, is. We're seeing the scouring of the Shire. And yeah, all this, all the stuff at the very yeah. end. Mm-hmm. It's all there. None of this was just off the cuff like The Hobbit was, but, and it had to be, in a, in a fun way, put back into the series. Right. But. It's like that Game of Thrones showrunners that apparently messed up your seventh season and yeah. screwed up the world. You had a whole writer's room. Tolkien just had himself and a typewriter. And he knew all that was going to happen. You guys had word processing. You could have like deleted and copied and pasted and... Instead, you guys just messed it up. Did you just messed it up, guys. Uh, another thing that goes back to the conversation we were having is the elves, when they realized Sam wanted, liked rope, mm-hmm. said that they wish they had known that, they would have taught him how. Mm-hmm. So there's some soli- solidness there, like just in their craftsmanship. It was really fun to see. Yeah, like these are people with yeah they're good at things they're bad at other things they have and i think a that's personality to that's them. the other thing that you don't get a sense of except through legolas 
and Jackson is that the elves can have any sort of community with lesser beings. Right. Right. You don't see them f- fellowshipping with the fellowship. <laughs> right. But you, well, you don't get any sense of Galadriel having a husband with any kind of working relationship with him. They're just yeah. these figures that are meant to sort of stand there bathed in blue and cold and austere light. and otherly. Yeah. And so, and that's, I think, how we think of like the British throne and stuff like that, or regality in general is like cold and austere. But we, we fail to see the warmth. Like in Henry V, there's warmth all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And so we don't, we, I do. I think it's just a, a paucity mm-hmm. in the American imagination when it comes to this sort of thing. I can't think of Henry without imagining Tom Hiddleston now. I know he's, he's better. Then who, who are you? Oh yeah. I don't think we have to be ashamed of that. Say that. I'll say it loudly. Hiddleston beats Branagh. The best Henry. But Tolkien really did love his environment. He loved his trees. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun to see the variety of forests that he comes up with. Yep. And so you got Mirkwood. Every forest has kind of its own tone to it, which is nice. Fangorn Forest. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't even got there yet. And this one, uh, there's this place in Effingham, Illinois, where they've grow these pines and um, it's for some sort of science project they're doing at a local university there. But it's very weird and uh, otherworldly feeling because all the pines grow very straight. And so you're walking through this woods. Jeremy and I used to go here when we did an oil and gas project there. And then suddenly you come on this clearing, like hundreds of these pines that are in like this big, like maybe half a mile wide circle, just growing straight up in the middle of this wild Illinois forest, as wild as an Illinois forest can get, but still, it's got that sort of strange kimpness, but still uh, otherworldliness that this forest has, and it's fun to see that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. he's, and he's good at that sort of imagining of these silver trees with their yellow leaves, and then the city and the trees. I mean, that is one place where his imagination did outrun Peter Jackson's, because there's no way Peter Jackson gave us that city. Oh, no, not at all. Mm-mm. You almost feel like Peter Jackson ran out of money or time or only yeah. had Blanchett for a day and a half or something yeah. like that. I want to I want, feels weirdly I want to see that actually. city. It's like New yeah. York in the trees is what it sounded yeah, like. Yeah, it's so cool. It's and bustling you don't and busy. Yeah. And yeah, it's awesome. Like you've it's, been there a million yeah. years and only a day and yeah, so much more that could have been there to have the, I mean, it felt like a big city but clean and elvish. Mm-hmm. So it would have been really fun to have seen that. It all went into Rivendell. Yeah. Yeah. And who wanted that? I like Jackson's Rivendell, actually. He actually got Rivendell pretty spot on, I think. I'd, I'd like to live there. It seems like yeah. a beautiful place. Hang out with Agent Smith with the works. One day when everything is... You would not is... want to live in Rivendell. Well, I mean, I'd want cable, but... <laughs> Eat some popcorn. If with... they have good Wi-Fi, then uh, yeah. you know, I'll be fine. I'm sad that there's there's not a lot of railings on balconies in Jackson's Middle Earth, so I always wonder how the elves don't fall over and die. Well, Sam was worried about the same thing when they had to sleep up in that tree. You make a fair point, Devil. The breaking, so we got the Great River, we got the breaking of the Fellowship. I think we've already made that point ad nauseum that the movie actually... say it once again. The movie got it better. The movie got it better. I like Aragorn making the choice to send him off. I think that's nice. And I especially like Boromir being fleshed out and a little having bit some sympathy. sadder and more human and having a redemptive arc with the whole, my captain, my king thing. Well, that's, that's maybe just goes to one of the strengths of like however many more years of cinematic storytelling where every character gets three-dimensional treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, even characters like Aragorn and Boromir. And that's going to be to Jackson's week. Uh, detriment later on yeah when Aragorn's too three-dimensional yeah so three-dimensional that he becomes just like everybody else well Tolkien's not interested generally speaking in gradations of personality he's he gives each character one trait and then you know Sam is loyal and he can done be loyal again and again I'm sure we've already made this point but he's just gonna keep being loyal and loyal and loyal and loyal and then he's gonna be loyal again Sam starts out it's just, it's bigger tests. Can you pass, can you use your same skill set to pass an even bigger test next time? That's all that happens in this book. Maybe you could argue that Pippin and Mary grow a little bit. That's about it though. Frodo doesn't change. Sam doesn't change. Yeah. Not really. Yeah. I mean, 
uh, and I'm not, that's not a criticism, I mean, by the way. That's just a description. Changed. They are changed by, yeah, they get sadder and older and wiser, I guess. But it's not, it's not a building's Roman, you know, it's not Frodo had the qualities that allowed him to do the thing he did. And he kept those qualities. Yeah. And Sam did too. And Aragorn did too. And Boromir didn't have what it took. And boy, did he ever. He paid the price. There's no version of this Boromir who's walking out alive, who's making it, who's not making the choice. He's just the guy that was condemned to do that. Yeah. Which is fine. It works for the book, but I do like, I think the movie adds a couple nice grace notes for Boromir in particular. Well, yeah, you basically don't get to see any of that, any of his death with Boromir. You don't get to see him save the hobbits. Right. So it's nice that they extend that sort of stuff and even provide a couple scenes of foreshadowing there. And yeah, it's nice. Yeah, that's good. And I get the sense that Tolkien wouldn't have minded those changes. Yeah, I don't, I mean, who knows, but I don't know why he would. Yeah. I, think, I think he might have had a problem with almost everything else in those movies. Certainly Faramir and... The second and third, yeah. Slapstick Marion Pippin, maybe. Yeah, you get the, you get the... I just wish that the more balanced interpretation he had for the Fellowship movie, that he had taken that to the Two Towers and the Return of the King. Well, where do you guys rank Fellowship the book as far as Lord of the Rings books goes? Is this... I don't think we can do that till we get to the end of this reading. That's fair. That's fair. I think you're right. I rank it number one as far as... Chronology. Chronology. Yeah. Well, there you go. I did too. You know, I actually think it came last. Ah. Yeah. If you look it up, I think you'll see that he published Return of the King first and worked his way backwards. It was very avant-garde. So you know what? My students taught me something the other day. Yeah. I did not realize that Melville didn't write all of Billy Budd. Who else wrote Billy Budd? He died, apparently, and his wife tried to ra- wrap it up with some of his notes and then um, hired a ghostwriter to kind of use those notes to finish up the last couple of chapters. How did your students know that? One of the students randomly just knew that because she had heard it, I think, from her dad or something. Hmm. So, it's fun. You find out these little details that you didn't know. There you go. Yeah. History is full of things. And stuff. And stuff. Speaking of things and stuff, one thing that I like is patrons. And I like shouting them out. And I suggest that we do this right now. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Elf, orc, or hobbit. You can both weigh in. Okay. Or any other creature you choose. Robert and Rhonda the lovebirds. Hobbits. Elves. Oh, you're right. Hobbits. And by the way, if you want to get a donor shout out, you go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. You sign up for at least $10 a month and we will shout you out as we are doing now. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Orc. <laughs> Ouch. Orc. Sorry, Ant. And I'm sorry that I called you Ant. That's not a good nickname for you. I guess he's an Ant. Ant. Yeah, there you go. Tony. Little Anthony Cigars, though. Elf. A wizard. The Immortal Chelsea E. Orc. <laughs> Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Uh, they're humans, people. Humans, people. Okay. Mm. Lily of the Valley. Mm. Elf. Oh, uh, Goldberry. Elf. Andrew Nestor the Life. I feel like this is going to insult Hobbits. all of our patrons. I feel like you set it up that way. There's no way to not make it that way. All right. Fine. They're all orcs. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Every one of you is orcs. Uh, I'm changing. I'm, I'm doing a Hail Mary or whatever you call it. Uh, audible. Yeah, an audible. What football play do these people remind you of? The Keith Master. Hail Mary. Sweet. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Hail Mary. <laughs> Twins Right. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Hail Mary. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also CS Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. Hail Mary. Oh boy. What penance that a priest gives you does this remind you of? Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Breath. 17 Hail Marys. Council Prime Adam. 13 Hail Four Marys. Four Our Fathers. Jeremy the Dark-Hooded Lord of Death. He's Lord Sauron. <laughs> Confession. Um, what reformer does this remind, do, does this person remind you of? Nathan, Martin not me. Luther. Martin Luther. Oh, yeah. Maya! Maya! Martin Lloyd-Jones. <laughs> what Martin do the rest of these people remind you of? Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Martin. 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 Oh, what's that guy? What's the comedian? Martin. Steve Martin. Steve, yeah. Danny the Dude. Martin Luther King Jr. DJ Sammy G. Marvin Martin the Lloyd Martin. Jones. Benny and Danny Tiberius. Marvin the Martian. American Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Marty McFly. Professor and Lady X. 
uh, Martin from like the you know the nineties, yeah, sitcom Martin. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. Martin Lavender's blue, blue. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. I love you too. Martin Lawrence. No constrictor. Martin Sheen. <laughs> Marichi. Beep, beep, Is there beep, a Martin beep, Sheen? Beep. Yeah. He, yeah. Yep. he played President Bartlett. Yeah. Did someone say somebody from Martin or from Marichip? Uh, running out of Martins. Here. You haven't said a Martin of a book we read. The Fair and Fragrant Megan, Maiden Chloe. A Martin of the book we read. We literally read a, read a book about a, with the title being the name of a character named oh, Martin. Martin Scorsese. True. Uh, that six, was not a book that we read. Yeah, that great novel, Martin Scorsese. Six Pack Zack with a mean attack and Catherine with a knack for laying down the smack. Martin mm-hmm. Freeman. Martin Dressler? Yeah, there you go. Anthony who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Martin Van Buren. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. You got the internet now. Come on. Yeah, I do. Martin Short. That's the guy I was trying to remember. Oh, of course. Leopard Tank Thomas. Martin Landau. Rachel. Did you say Martin Freeman? Midnight Ninja Ellen. Oh, oh. Martin Crane. Marty Crane. From Frasier? Yeah. <laughs> Frasier's dad? Dude. I said Midnight Ninja Ellen. Queen Kigeta. Martin Short. Uh, Brandon just said him, didn't he? Yeah, I did. But I said Martin Freeman then. Okay, Martin O'Malley. Who's Martin O'Malley? He is an American politician and attorney. Uh, who... The Martin O'Malley. <laughs> Return of the Jedediah. <laughs> Martin Heidegger. <laughs> Heidegger, of course. Heidegger, Jay of Rack and Ruin. Ooh, Martin Brodeur. Who's Martin Brodeur? Yeah, you want to you want the top five the, writers of all time, uh, according to Ranker.com? Yeah, Brandon. Coming in at number one. Oh, let's do from the five. Number five is... Number six is Charles Dickens. Number five is Miguel de Cervantes. Okay, can you give us a hint for number four? Um, we read him. Shakespeare. No. Uh, Ernest Klein. He wrote an epic. Beowulf. Couple epics. Tolstoy. Oh, Homer. Homer, yeah. Uh, this guy, we're reading him. What, are, what, towards, what even are we talking about? We're re- These are the best writers of all time. This okay. is number three. We're reading him at the end of this year. Dostoevsky. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. He gets number, number three? Wow. Number two. Jane Austen. No, I Tolstoy. Think Tolstoy, yeah. And number Shakespeare. one is Shakespeare. Okay, well, that's lame. Dostoevsky. Jane Austen is in the top 10. She's number 10. So Tolstoy didn't place? Tolstoy's number two. number two. Oh, duh. Never mind. Yeah. Jane Austen's number 10. Dostoevsky. Yeah, it's just but barely. Still. Victor oh, Hugo, please. George Orwell, and Ernest Hermingway. But all beat. Ernest Hermingway. I've never Ernest even heard of him. <laughs> Wait, George Orwell is in so the top Jane 10? So Jane Austen, number nine, is Victor Hugo. Number eight is George Orwell. Oh, my goodness. Number seven is Ernest Hemingway. Number six is Charles Dickens. I mean, Ranker.com sucks. Yeah. Because George Orwell, for all his great essays on prose essay. style, he's his you know prose who number style 11 is, kind is? Of a, a cumbersome. Ernest Klein. J.R.R. Tolkien. Yay. Okay. Timothy the Writer at Dawn. Frankenstein. These are just the most popular writers. That's all that is. Uh, did I say J. Brack and Ruin? Eric and Kate, the Camp Champ Kings, who are warm and love bees. Banana. Nope. I need a Martin. Oh, man. Martin Lawrence. I've said Martin Lawrence like three times I need, already. I need different Martins. I don't know anymore. I need more Martins. There aren't more Martins. The birds, the Martin. How about Martin. Martin the Warrior from that mouse series of books? Sure. <laughs> I never read Redwall. Maddie, Maddie. You knew the reference though. Maddie, 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 Batman. Martin Kayon is a soccer player. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Martin Buchan, another soccer player. Oh, boo. Tyler the Keeper, oh. Tyler the Keeper of Eternal Darkness. Martin Am um, Amos. There's Martin Am um, Amos. Martin Amos. Jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Laura the Keeper of Eternal Light. Uh, Martin Starr. He's a comedian. Apparently. I doubt it. Cold Steel Cody. <sighs> Martin Galinus. I think he's a hockey player. Is what this says. <laughs> you haven't heard of Martin Martin Gallimimus? Jacqueline the Librarian Barbarian. Martin Comston, another footballer. John Bombadillo, Bomb Diggity. Martin Chambers. And Captain Daniil, his mate. Martin Petrov. I feel like you guys could have dug deeper for some better Martins, but I'll let it go. All right. Bye. The Booketing Today, written by Martin Van Buren, performed by Martin Lawrence, Martin Freeman, and Martin Short. 
produced by Martin McFly and directed by Martin Scorsese. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. There you will be able to support us. Right, Brennan? You sure could. And Brennan, your favorite Martin of all time? Uh, Martini. <laughs> a delicious martini. Bye. From uh, it's, wonder- it's a Wonderful Life. Is that the name of a character in It's a Wonderful Life? Nick Martini. Oh, yeah. There you go. Brandon's favorite character from life. <laughs>